are sure about the Bible, whether you're sure about the gospel and Jesus and God or whatever or not, we hope that you find this to be a safe place to be, to find friends, uh, and to open the Bible with us. Because that's what we do on Thursday nights. We open the Bible. Uh, This semester we've been in the Gospel of Luke. And now as kind of we wind down the semester, which is kind of hard to believe, we've only got a few weeks left. Uh, As we wind down the semester, uh, we are getting fastly uh, towards the end of this gospel. Uh, Tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 18. So we've been asking the question uh, this semester, Doctor Who, Luke, who wrote this gospel, was a physician. We're asking him, who is this Jesus? Uh, And continually looking every night at some of these encounters and stories that Luke tells us uh, and asking that question, who is this Jesus, to kind of help us understand why it is Luke tells us the story. The question I want to ask tonight in the passages that we look at is what does real and assured faith in this Jesus look like? Tonight, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke. Jesus, a rich guy, a blind guy, and a short guy. That's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's go ahead and dive into this. Luke chapter 18. Uh, We're going to start here in verse uh, 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to himself and said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus looking at him with sadness said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it then said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon and after flogging him, they will kill him and on the third day, he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more. 
Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and he followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The grass withers with the flowers fade. The word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray before we look into this. Father, we come now to your word and we ask that you would send your spirit, that by your spirit we would have eyes to see, hearts to believe, lives that would cling to these words as if they were life itself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what does real and assured faith in this Jesus look like? Three things. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Anybody get it? Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. All right? First thing here is clear eyes. If you remember a couple weeks ago when we were in Luke chapter 9, I told you it wasn't really even as far as how many chapters there are in this gospel. It wasn't even the halfway point through this gospel, but according to Luke's telling of the public ministry of Jesus, in Luke chapter 9, at the end of that chapter, he told us that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. Meaning, he set his face to go up to Jerusalem for the last time, because he knew once he got there what would happen, he would be crucified, right? And so everything after Luke chapter 9 is Luke recording things that happened as Jesus was making his way to Jerusalem. And here we find ourselves, he's at Jericho, it's one of the last major stops, uh, the last bathroom break or whatever on the highway, before you get to Jerusalem, okay? And so he is days away from his passion. He is days away from entering Jerusalem for the last week of his earthly life. Days away from being crucified. Days away from God resurrecting him. And these uh, are the three last personal encounters that Luke wants to tell us about before Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Okay, And there's three things that all of these stories have in common. And I would suggest to you it's sight. All three of these stories have something to do with sight. What does real and assured faith in this kingdom mean? What does it look like? It involves seeing the kingdom and seeing the king for who he is. That's what it involves. We see in these three stories, the rich young ruler is totally blind to it. The blind man totally sees it. And Zacchaeus, because he's short in stature, I sympathize with him, just needs to get a little higher 
to see it, right? All three of these stories are telling us the same thing in this vein. In and of ourselves, we are completely blind to the good news of the kingdom and the king that was bringing it. That's what all three of these stories tell us. In and of ourselves, we are totally blind to the good news of the kingdom and the king who brings it. And we see it throughout the Gospels. We see it not just in the crowds that don't know what to do with Jesus. If you read through the Gospels, you see his own disciples doing this over and over. Not really sure if Jesus is really going to pull through with what they think he's going to pull through with. Right? In the rich ruler here, in this story, we see complete spiritual blindness. In Zacchaeus and the blind man, we see that their faith is a, is a result of a healing of their sight. But apart from the miraculous intervention of Jesus himself, what we continually are shown is that in and of ourselves, we're blind. We can't see clearly. So we need clear eyes. If we're going to come towards, if we're going to pursue this thing called full-hearted faith, um, real and assured faith, we need sight. Uh, we need sight. There's three things that we can kind of trace through the story um, about not having clear eyes in and of ourselves. The first one is this, is that we're completely blind to our idols. This is the rich young ruler. He is completely blind to his idols. And because he's completely blind to his idols, he's completely blind to the news of the kingdom. And because he's completely blind to the news of the kingdom, he's completely blind to who Jesus is. Because he is completely blind... To his idols. You look at this story, this rich, it's just called a ruler here. He's just called a ruler here by Luke. But in the other Gospels, he was, he, we're told that he was a rich young ruler. And by the end of the story, we're told that he was extremely rich, right? He's an honest seeker. He knows Jesus is somebody special. He maybe even believes Jesus is sent of God. And so he goes to Jesus um, and he wants to make sure that he's got it right. But what we see in his encounter is that he's completely blind even to the barriers that are keeping him from Jesus. He wants to make sure he hasn't left anything out. But Jesus tells him that's not his problem. Jesus tells him his problem is what he's let in. His problem is not that he hasn't done enough. It's that he's let too much in. His eyes, as we see when he goes away sad, are entirely fixed on the things of this world. His eyes are entirely fixed on the stuff that he owns. So much so that even the suggestion of giving it all away makes him extremely sad. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, has said before, in all of his years of pastoral counseling, he's never once had a person come to him and say, you know what, I struggle with greed. Isn't that interesting? Um, I I think it's true. Do you know anybody that's ever said to you, you know what, I just spend way too much money on myself. Does anybody, maybe somebody said that, I don't know. I don't think anybody's ever said that. And, And the thing is, is you look at the New Testament, you look at the whole of Scripture, Jesus warns people All over the place about greed. All over the place. About greed and the dangers of setting our eyes and our hearts on the things of this world and treasuring the things on this earth. You never hear Jesus, hey, you better watch out for that adultery thing. It'll sneak up on you. Right? The Bible doesn't talk about something like adultery like that, right? And we don't either because it's obvious, right? That one doesn't sneak up on you. Um... We are completely blind to our idols, the things that we worship and that we put in our hearts. And so the second part of this this not having clear eyes is because we're completely blind to our idols, we're completely blind to the depth of our problem. 
That's also the rich man's problem. He's completely blind to the depth of his problem. He thinks, I can just go to Jesus on my terms and kind of just like, maybe me and Jesus can have a little conversation and he can give me just a little pep talk that I need and and make sure that I'm doing everything right. And he comes wanting to take Jesus only on his terms. And that's precisely why he walks away sad. A lot of people, you read this story, a lot of people get scared of what Jesus is saying. Like, is Jesus saying, like, I have to give away all my possessions to get in? And I think in one aspect, when you read stories like this, you've got to stop worrying so much about what you think Jesus is or is not, what he's not saying. And let's actually concentrate on what he is saying. He is telling the ruler, at least this guy, that he needs to give all his stuff away. Why? What he's telling him is, because true faith... Alright, young, young man, rich young ruler, you want true faith. True faith clings to me and me alone and nothing else. That's what Jesus pinpoints for this man and his problem. And it's a problem for this man that ultimately, if left unchecked, it would damn him to hell. So Jesus looks at him, it says that he looks at him and he's sad. It literally says that he had compassion on this guy. You don't even see the depth of your problem. Therefore, we're completely blind to our idols. Therefore, we're completely blind to the depth of our problem. Therefore, thirdly, we're completely blind to who Jesus really is and what Jesus really is bringing. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. I want you to think about this just for a second. Maybe you've heard that verse before. We preach. He's talking about his own ministry. Paul's talking about his ministry. We preach Christ crucified. We Christians, right? We think that's really good news. We preach Christ crucified, but it's a stumbling block to Jews, meaning the religious people who think they have it all together. And it's folly to the Gentiles, meaning the non-religious people who don't think they need anything. It's both. Why would the preaching of a message of full salvation, accomplished by a loving God in the flesh, be a stumbling block why would it be folly and it's this and this is what the rich young ruler is and where he's at because you and i our problem is that we all think we're basically good on most days we think basically a little screw up here or there last friday night whatever but basically we think we're good therefore why would we need a savior right All of us have something that we just kind of naturally go to at the end of the day that we use to convince ourselves that we're okay. We have at least, like, no matter what kind of day we have, if it's a bad day, a dark day, we at least have that one something that at the end of the day, I think, well, at least I've got that, right? It could be your grades. It could be your major. It could be what job you got lined up after college. I don't know. It could be the plans you have for the future. It could be your boyfriend or your girlfriend. It could be your group of friends. It could, have been, it could be your rock star campus minister. I don't know. <laughs> Not me, but um, somebody. Um, what is it for you? Because here's the thing. We look at this where, where Jesus, is, um, Jesus tells this guy to give all his possessions away. And we are so quick to say, well, look, Jesus wasn't saying everybody should give their stuff away. That's not what he was saying. But I want you to think about this. Are you not at least curious that of all the things that the early Christians were known for, one of the primary things they were known for was giving all their stuff away? Interestingly enough. 
I think that we can at least say this. That if there is not an urge in you to give something away, then perhaps you are blind to who this king is and what this kingdom is that he's bringing. Right? Because you may be stumbling around in the darkness of your own idolatry to things. And so the question hangs over us. What will following Jesus, what will listening to Jesus, what will obeying Jesus cost me? Because the thing that Jesus promised is that it will cost us something. And like I said last week, I think it was last week, maybe two weeks ago, in our heart of hearts, have we ever truly believed that following this Jesus would cost us something? I think for most of us who grew up in, most, safe to say most people in this room, white suburban churches, that thought really hasn't crossed our mind. Yeah, I might need to give up Facebook for a month. Wow, it's hard. It must be hard, right? It doesn't have to, but here's the, it doesn't have to be money. Money is an easy one to go to, right? For all of us, whether we have a lot of it or not. But it doesn't have to be money. It doesn't even have to be possessions. It could be a relationship. It could be a desire to be in somewhere. It could be an addiction that is eating away at your body and your mind and your heart. It could be the fact that you can't even remember the last weekend that you didn't have a drink. What is it? Faith in this king and life in this kingdom involves clear clear vision of believing that the things of this world are just that. Things. Clear eyes. Clear eyes, secondly, lead us to full hearts. Clear eyes leads to full hearts. We see this beautifully in a myriad of ways in this passage. We see the ultimate emptiness of a man who thought he had it all. We see the fullness of a man who asked for it and receives it. Um, even though he had nothing. We see the fullness repaid by a man who thought he had it all, but realized he had gained it um, on false pretenses, right? Full-hearted faith involves two things. Dependence and repentance. Full-hearted faith, when we get clear eyes, we get full-hearted faith, and it involves these two things, dependence and repentance. The first one, dependence, right? There's a great, this is why I read, I forgot to put it on your handout, I think. This is why I read verses 15 through 17. There's a great little transition um, that Luke makes as the writer of this gospel from some parables that Jesus was telling. He makes this transition to some other things that happen. He talks about the children, right? You can imagine the scene, and this is, I I, kind of imagine this is how the disciples felt, right? You can imagine the scene, you're walking with Jesus, you're traveling to Jerusalem, all these people are just cannot wait to get, you know, it's like Dan Mullen's radio show at the veranda, like right now, um, right? Everybody just wants to be as close as they can and hear what he has to say, even though maybe he doesn't say anything at all. Um, and you got tons of moms, tons of screaming, tons of crying, whining kids. In other words, it feels like the sixth level of hell or whatever from Dante's Inferno. I don't know. Um, hell on earth. Yet, in the middle of all that, what Jesus does is he looks at the children, brings them to himself and says, to such Belong the kingdom of God. Let them come to me. Let them come. In fact, whoever does not receive the kingdom just like a child isn't going to enter it. Now, that could mean a lot of things, and I think there's various things that it does mean. But at the least, what I think it does mean is that entering this kingdom means entering it like a dependent child. 
Entering this kingdom is like entering like a dependent child. Think about it. C.S. Lewis says, said this, and I've seen other people say things like this too. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. We need others physically, emotionally, and intellectually. We need them if we are to know anything, even ourselves. As soon as we are fully conscious, we discover loneliness. This is the the phenomenon of a crying baby, right? There's something that happens. There's something weird happens when you have your first child, right? In the hospital, everything is great. Y'all seen that episode of The Office where Jim and Pam like don't want to leave the hospital? I've watched that the other night, and it just reminded reminded me of it all over again. There comes that time where it's like everybody in the hospital is like, "Okay, you can go home now," and you're kind of like, "Yeah, I think we'll stay," (laughs) right? Because there's a sense it comes over. He's like. This thing belongs to me now. Like, I got to take care of it. Like, I don't think I'm ready for this. It's what you signed up for. Um, anyway, but think about it. Think about, the, think, think about it in terms of thinking about the rich young ruler in comparison to the blind man. Okay? The rich young ruler assumes that he and Jesus are on the same page and that in the grand scheme of things, he's doing all right. But what about the blind man? For whatever reason, actually, we kind of get the reason right off the bat. He's blind. He cries out just at the mention that this Jesus of Nazareth is near him. He cries out, son of David, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. There's, look, there's nothing more disorienting than losing your sight, right? There's nothing more disorienting than being in a room with no natural light that comes in and the power going out, right? Everybody just like, you want to move but it's dark and you're, you're like frozen in the darkness, right? Um, we freak out. There's, no, there's a, no greater sense of helplessness um, than being in complete darkness like that. Um, the blind man gets it. He gets it because he's lived his life as a blind man. He's had that disorientation and that helplessness his whole life. He doesn't know what things look like. He cannot get from one end of a room to the other without someone taking him there. Or at least without stumbling his way there. He knows what it's like to be helpless. And the fascinating thing to me at least is that his plea for mercy actually clues us into that he spiritually gets it as well. Because he doesn't just say, hey, can, can you help me see? He says, have mercy on me. I don't deserve you helping me, but please help. He gets it. Pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, Rick Phillips, he says it like this. He says that this actually um, applies to all the miracles in a way. And he says it like this. Leprosy shows sin's corrupting power and its condemning presence. The lame show sin's debilitating power. The dead proclaim the wages of sin. The demon-possessed show the destructive domination that's always the result of our bondage to sin and Satan. For this man, he had a living, tangible reality that clued him in to his utter spiritual helplessness. He was blind. And the interesting part of it is, of all the characters in the story, he's the one that sees it most clearly. We get so hung up on the fact that Jesus says your faith has saved you. We hate when Jesus says things like that, right? Because it's like, what does that mean? Like, how do I get that? I don't know. Because the problem that we have when Jesus says things about faith like this is that we automatically say, well, what, what am I supposed to do to be like that? And you've totally missed the point. Because saving faith is not something that you do. It's just not. It's more like a posture. 
It's more like a posture of complete helplessness. We sing it in a hymn that we sing here. Come ye sinners. Let not conscience make you linger. Nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. Where do we get that? This he gives you. This he gives you. Tis the Spirit's rising beam. You can't even drum up your neediness on your own. That's how needy you are. And that's God's work in your heart when you begin to feel it. In other words, it's like a child. You know you've started believing. You know you're getting close to saving faith when you turn to Jesus like a dependent child. Full-hearted faith involves dependence, but the second thing that we see it involves here is repentance. Because full-hearted faith is not only a full-fledged dependence, a full-fledged throwing myself on another. It also involves repentance, an active turning away from something into Jesus. That something is sin, right? Turning away from our sin, turning away from our idols, turning away from all those things that our hearts cling to, and turning to Jesus. Not only does the rich young ruler not think that he needs Jesus, he doesn't think that he has anything to turn away from. And he kind of resents that Jesus suggests it. He doesn't want to turn away from anything. What about Zacchaeus, though? We don't really know where Zacchaeus is at at the beginning of the story. We know he's a chief tax collector, which means everybody hated him. So we know that probably nobody in his life has ever been nice to him because he's a greedy, cheating tax collector. That's what tax collectors were. And not only does the love of Jesus meet him where he is, up in the tree, right? The love of Jesus will not leave him there. So Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your house today. We all remember the song from Sunday school, right? I almost started singing it. That was weird. Um, And immediately, so Jesus comes into this guy's house. And as the story reads, immediately Zacchaeus realizes all that he's done and all the wrong that he's done. And he says, not only am I going to pay it back, I'm going to pay it back fourfold. I have to. And you notice the order here, right? It's not until the end of the story that Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. But here's the question. When did salvation come into Zacchaeus' life? I would suggest to you, it's the moment that Jesus calls out to him. That is the moment salvation came to his house. So it's not that salvation came to Zacchaeus because of what Zacchaeus did. It's because that Zacchaeus did what he did because salvation had finally come home. He had looked his whole life to things. And he realized that something else could take its place and actually give him the satisfaction that he'd so desperately longed for. It's another thing amazing about children, and man, just wait till you have children to really learn this, but a child's ability to keep short accounts, right? And sometimes I I deal with the shame of the things that I say and how I say them to my children. My oldest child is 10, my youngest one's three, right? Should not be saying harmful things to my children, but man, please don't come over when I'm in one of those states. I still want to have my job. Um... (laughs) But it's so amazing that even when I completely screw up and completely put all the frustration and anger and insecurity I've been dealing with in the day and I put that on them, it's amazing to me how quickly they are to be right back in my lap. Right? 
It's almost as if they intuitively know that the enjoyment of their father is better than dwelling on the fear that they've done something to ruin it. Even I do a lot of things to ruin it. That's the amazing part of the story. This is why full-hearted faith involves repentance. Right, we've got the 500th, year of, uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation coming up, so I'll throw in a Martin Luther illustration. This is why it's rather fascinating that Martin Luther, in 95 Theses, the first one that he puts at the list, is that when our Lord, Master, and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed that the entire life of the believer was to be one of repentance. What was Luther getting at? What he was getting at was not, repentance is not something where you drop a coin in the bucket every now and then when you think you need it. No. Jesus intended that our entire life be taken up in repentance. How could that be? How could we go about in repentance? How could that be a way of life? It feels so damaging, right? We know how damaging criticism is. It's even more damaging, at least to our ego, to then admit our wrong. We know how hard that is. Why would we be called to live an entire life? How could we be called to live an entire life of repentance? Because full-hearted faith sees and knows that there exists for me a love for me greater than all the affections I have ever known. And to know that love means that I can safely and secure give all of it, give all of me to it. Full-hearted faith involves dependence and repentance. The final thing here, clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. Look at verse, verses 24 and 26 there in chapter 18. Jesus basically turns away this rich young ruler and, he, and then he looks at his disciples and says how hard it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. It's amazing how we American Christians just skip over this chapter so easily. His disciples then go, uh, well then how, how can anybody be saved? Why? Why do they ask that? Because in this culture, in this culture, to be wealthy, it meant that you had it all together. It meant that God smiled on you. It meant that God blessed you. It meant that God must love that person because they have a lot of stuff. That's what people believed. And so the disciples look at that and say, if that guy can't get in, then we're screwed, basically. Peter tries to make up for it. We left everything, Jesus. Help us, please. And what is Jesus' response? It's impossible for you. It is impossible for you. Yeah, Peter, you're right. It is impossible for you. But not with God. You see, for you and I, at some point, at some point we will finally believe that those who are closest to God are not the ones who think they have it all together. It's not how it works. And the first step is admitting that we have a problem. Admitting that we are blind to the idols of our hearts. Admitting that we are blind to the depth of our problem. Admitting that we are blind to our need of this Jesus. 
every hour of every day of every year until he actually comes back again. And this is the beautiful thing about the story of Zacchaeus. He's, this is Luke, for Luke, this is the last personal encounter that Jesus has before he gets to Jerusalem, this, with this encounter with Zacchaeus. And you see it with the blind man as well. But what we see is that this is the kind of healing ultimately, that Jesus is bringing. With the blind man, you see Jesus meeting him in his physical distress. But he has a view firmly fixed on his eternal destiny. That one day, God will indeed save us from each and every last consequence of our sin and the sin of others against us. Both. The picture we get here As he approaches Jerusalem, as he approaches that darkness, that for all the darkness that looms in the world, the picture that we're reminded of before he gets to that last dark week of his life is that for all the darkness in this world, the power of this kingdom is already at work. It's already at work. That people are not only welcomed in, and we're not only to be about the business of welcoming other people in, but people actually are healed and lives actually are changed. And we're called to take an active part in that. Look at verse 43 of chapter chapter 18. We're told that all followed Him and were praising Him and glorifying God, right? But you go back just 12 verses to verse 31 and He's there again telling them, I'm about to go, I'm about to be rejected, I'm about to be killed. How could people be praising and glorifying God in the midst of the darkness of that sadness of the thing that was coming into Jesus' life? Why? How did darkness and praise fit together? It's because of what He says there after verse 31. All of it is happening in fulfillment of the prophets. That it's precisely because Jesus will draw on Himself the darkness of hell and earth All of it. That life is welling up already everywhere else. He will take on the blindness and the despair of the world. Why? So that we can see. He will suffer the loss of everything at the ultimate cost to Himself. Why? So that we can become and be the riches of God Himself. Paul puts it perfectly in 2 Corinthians 8. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you, by His poverty, might become rich. I ask it every week. It's a great story. But what if it were true? It's an invitation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we must admit that at times our blindness is more tangible than we would dare to admit. Father, give us eyes to see. Give us hearts to believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.